I'll tell you about a survey that I came across, uh, some data I came across this past week. It was a survey done of millennials. Now let me explain in case you don't know what that means. Millennials being a demographic breakdown of, of folks that were born after Gen Xers. That is to say the millennials are folks that typically, depending on the, you know, the statistician, but who you're talking to, but typically what that means is folks born sometime in the early 80s up through the early 2000s, okay? So this, these were questions that were posed of people within, you know, born within that, that time period. Um, the, this question in particular was posed to those in their early 30s. They were asked, what are your top five regrets as you look back to your 20s? Okay, so it's not a lot of life experience there, but, but you know, it's something, something. So what are your top five regrets, you young 30-something, as you look back to your 20s? And within that, that top five was this, becoming or not becoming, not becoming spiritually mature. It's rather interesting that that was a response that was called forth from all the more interesting when you when the, you plunge a little deeper into the questions in the same survey and it was asked of those in their 20s not, not those in the 30s it was asked of those in their 20s what are the the top 5 things you want to accomplish before you turn 30 and the spiritual maturity thing doesn't show up See, it's interesting that you know just those few years seemed of life experience seems to make something some kind of difference. You get knocked around, you get rubbed raw, you, you begin to realize even in that short span, maybe there's something more. Maybe, well, let me put it this way: Is it possible? Is it possible? Run with me here. Is it possible to to become spiritually mature? Is that desirable? Is it is it possible to to have a Growing, vibrant relationship with the true and living God. Is that possible? And if so, is it desirable? Do, you, do we want it? And if so, how does that happen? Well, Paul talks about this very thing, how it happens, uh, and at least from one particular standpoint, in Philippians chapter 3. He uses a sports metaphor, which might grab some of your attention. Now, I hate to disappoint you. It's not World Cup soccer. Uh, that, that's actually not the analogy that Paul works from here. Um, but it is the Olympic Games. It is the Olympic Games, um, track and field, actually. Uh, so Philippians 3, if you've got a Bible with you, uh, turn with me there. Uh, this is that wonderful letter that we're in the midst of studying through. Uh, if you're trying to find it, it's after the Gospels, so certainly New Testament, after the Gospels and after Acts and Romans and the first and second of the Corinthian letters that we have and Galatians and Ephesians, Philippians. Okay, so Philippians chapter 3, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 16, but I'm going to start at the beginning of the chapter. This is a letter, there's a flow to what Paul is saying here. What he's saying in verses 12 through 16 builds on verses 1 through 11, what we looked at uh, last week. So I'm going to start in chapter 1, uh, excuse me, verse 1, uh, verse 1, chapter 3. Hear now the word of God. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, 
If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Well, let's uh, before we dig into this, let's pray together. I'm going to be praying somewhat loosely from uh, Psalm 19 here. Lord, your law is perfect, reviving the soul. Your testimony is sure, making wise the simple. Your precepts are right, rejoicing the heart. Your commandment is pure, enlightening the eyes. Your rules are true and righteous altogether. Your ways are more desired than gold, at least they should be. Certainly more desirable than gold and much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey. Drippings of the honeycomb, indeed, by them we, are, we can be warned. And in keeping them, we know there is great reward. So Lord, with that in mind, with, with that assessment of what we're studying here together over these next few minutes, uh, we ask that you would help us hear, uh, help us attend to this, help us focus and, and, and listen, not, not to me, but to you, uh, to your Spirit speaking through your Word. Thank you that we could have these few minutes here on, on the start of the, the week and the start of the day um, to do this very thing. And we, we pray that you would therein set the tone, set the pace for the coming week and even help us as we look back on this past week to have it uh, assessed rightly um, through your eyes, with new eyes. So, we do pray for eyes and ears, that we might know your heart. Amen. So, uh, why are we here? Why are we here? Um, That's not a bad question to ask. You know, um, purpose and understanding one's purpose has bearing on your bearings. Um, So, why are we here? Some of you may remember uh, the dialogue from Wonderland. Um, some of you are, feel like you're living in Wonderland, but um, 
Alice, Alice and the Cheshire Cat. Would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here, she asked. Well, that depends a good deal on where you want to get to, said the cat. I don't much care where, said Alice. Then it doesn't matter which way you go, said the cat. Well, a lot of wisdom in that strange little uh, dialogue. So why are we here? Now, you could answer that whimsically. You could say, well, I'm here because I drove here. Or someone drove me here. That's why I'm here in that sort of existential, in-the-moment kind of answer. Okay, why are you here? Why can you peel that back, just push it a little bit further? You could say, well, it's because of, you know, I, I'm commitments that were made by me or others yesterday, last week, last month, la the last few years. Well, but pushing it even further, why are you here? You know, wrestling with that, you could say, well, you know, it has to do with my genealogy. It has to do with uh, my family history. Um, it has to do with my ancestors. Are going even broader, you could say. My goodness, when you think of the flow of world history and events and the who colonized where and who got married how and settlements and all of that's why I'm here. And that's fine. Those are all true to some degree. But they're not really going where we need to be going here this morning. And that is asking the question, why are we here in the sense of purpose? We are here because of God's plans and purposes. Now, what are his plans and purposes for the, the, the believer, for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus? Well, as we read, John Stott said it very, very well. It's that quote that I read from at the start of the service. To become more like Christ. Christian, follower of Christ. Why are you here? To become more like Him. Context of uh, where we are in this letter. Okay, we've read for a chunk here of chapter 3 of Philippians 3, so... Uh, let me, uh, let, me, let me just summarize this real quickly. So verse 1, Paul commands, urges, implores the reader to rejoice and rejoice in the Lord. Verses 2 and 3, he gives a warning. A warning stating that, look, you've got to recognize that there are those, if you listen to their teaching, if you follow their way and their path, it will rob you of all of this joy. And then verses 4 through 11, Paul does like an accountant, an audit on himself, on his wonderful relatively, formally speaking, blemishless record, he does the audit and then realizes that really, profoundly, he is spiritually bankrupt. Uh, self-righteousness, self-dependency, self-sufficiency, it's got to be left behind, it's got to be jettisoned, it's got to be abandoned because our security before God is only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, there's assurance to be found there. There's rest, rest of the soul, deep, profound peace that can... Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. You know, going back to those beautiful lyrics that we sung a few minutes ago. Um, there's profound rest and assurance and comfort, but here's where Paul's going in verses 12 through 16. Okay, what now? With that assurance in mind, what, what now? Um, he shifts the metaphor from the, uh, the world of accounting 
to the field of athletics. It makes clear that this assurance is not intended to sedate us into doing nothing, but rather to stimulate us into getting up and moving and passionately following after, chasing after this one who has seized us, who has laid his, his hand, put his name upon us. So not to sedate us to lay down, but to stimulate us to get up and run. And that actually is the metaphor that he's using here. A race. A race. An athletic contest. The Olympics, perhaps, even. Uh, point being, Paul's getting at here, God's purpose for us is to become more like Christ. We need to hear that and pursue it. God's purpose for us, His intentions, His plan for us as is to become more and more like Christ. We need to hear that and pursue it. And what does that look like? Well, again, the metaphor is used here of a race. I'm going to break it down into three components. Um, what's the, uh, what sort of running technique would this involve? Well, that would be what I'll call running without swagger. That's the first point. The second thing would be, well, what's our focus as we're moving down the track? with eyes forward, with eyes set ahead. And then how do we run? What's the sort of footing do we have? Or as one author put it, you know, what sort of starting block do we jump out of? Firm footing. Firm footing. I'm going to unpack that as we go. Um, not ready for the benediction yet. Uh, so here you go. The first points. Uh, the first point. So technique. What does it look like? As, as, what, what's the cadence? What's the pace? All of that. To run without swagger. To run without swagger. You know, if, if you're asking, if you're, if you're looking for a trainer to tell you about, well, I want to start running, I want to, you know, do the half marathon or, or you know, what is it from couch potato to half marathon? I don't know. I don't, I didn't, I'm not going to read the book. I don't want to know what it is, actually. But anyway, um, if you need to know what the running technique is going to be, they'll, they'll tell you some things along the lines of, you know, a pace that is, that is easy, um, that is relaxed. That, that really you don't want to be landing on the heels, on the back of your feet, but on the front, you know, towards the, the balls of your feet. And for goodness sake, take rests between the runs, you know, maybe every three days or, or so, and get some good shoes. There's technique involved if you're going to run and, and run this well. Well, there's, you might say technique involved here. What does it look like to run without swagger, in essence, is what Paul is saying here. Verses 12 and 13. Not that I have already obtained this, you know, reflecting on what he's already said, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Paul is saying here is that the, what Paul is saying here is that the Christian is not perfect. We have not arrived. None of us. Paul is saying that of himself. This is the apostle. I have not, you have not, we have not, we are not perfect. Uh, when, you, when you consider the, the extent, when you just consider the reality of our sin, the, the missing of the mark, what the, what the word means, and the extent of that, I think, I think it was alluded to in one of the prayers earlier already in the service, of, you know, in my thoughts, I'm falling short. In my words, what I'm saying, I'm falling short. In my, the attitudes of my heart, in my, in my deeds, what I do, I'm constantly falling short. And then 
breaking it down in terms of omission, thought, word, deed. I'm failing to do. I'm leaving things out. And then commission, what I'm actively trying to do. I'm a mess. So are you. And what Paul is saying here, we have not arrived. We are not perfect. None of us. But praise God, we are making progress. Because a work is underway within the heart and the life by the power of the Spirit in the life of the Christian. There's a renovation project going on. Not just an addition, by the way. A renovation, ground up. The foundation's in tatters. It's got to be ground up here, and God, by the power of His Spirit, is doing it. Paul's alluded to that already in the first chapter. Remember, go back, look with me. Chapter 1, verse 6. He's speaking of his audience, his readers here, and I am sure of this, Philippians 1, 6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So there's something going on. We're, We're not perfect. We haven't arrived, but something's going on. So it's good balance here. It's, it's a humbling balance, an encouraging balance, but a humbling balance at the same time. And it ought to affect how we run. How we run. But Paul speaks not just to what we are in this perfect but progressing state, but also he even alludes to what we know. Now, by the way, in, in saying this, and I want to be careful here, but Paul is saying when he speaks of imperfect knowledge, he's not a first century postmodernist saying, oh, we can't know anything. There's no truth. There's nothing objective. It's just all of That's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying there is, there is truth that can be known, but we are limited in our ability to grasp it and take it in. Look with me. Verses 15 and 16. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if any, anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. His point is... Paul's point is a mark of spiritual maturity and perfection is knowing you are not mature and perfect. Now, I know that sounds kind of head-spinning, convoluted, counterintuitive, but that's in essence what he's saying. It's interesting, the, uh, the word in the English that we translate in verse 15 as mature is the exact same word in the Greek, going back to verse 12, that's translated perfect. A mark of spiritual maturity and perfection is knowing you are not spiritually mature and perfect. You know you haven't arrived. And that is a mark of spiritual maturity. The implication of all this being we ought to be patient with each other. We ought to be with ourselves, yes, but with each other as well because God is the one who's doing the work. He's got the design plans. He's got the specs in mind. He knows where it's going with you and you and you and you and me. And his timing of working in this area of this person's life is paced differently and targeted differently than over here. And we should recognize that and have and be a wonder about that and just relieve that he's actually doing something in our lives as well. Paul models this humility as well when you think about it in the terms that he uses. He speaks here, again, as the apostle, right? He doesn't pull a power play. How does he refer to these folks? Brothers. This warm, gentle, fraternal, familial uh, term. Brothers. 
not peons, not idiots, not, you know, whatever you want to fill in, but brothers. And then also the, the tone with which he speaks. You know, verse 15 and 16, I mean, Paul knows the issues that are, but he knows what's right regarding those issues, but he's saying, you know, it's, it's okay. God's at work in you and in me, and in time, you're going to get it. You're going to get it. Um, again, humility. To grasp the gospel is to become humble. How do we run? What does it look like? We run without swagger. Now, applying this, I think this can safely be applied, when you take a step back and think this through, to one of the most pressing issues in the church. I got your attention. Good. And that is the depression of the saints. Or sometimes referred to as spiritual depression. And which, by the way, is every depression, because every depression, every struggle with melancholy affects the human spirit. And you're wondering, well, how does this connect to that? Okay, well, think with me. What, when, you're, when you're in the midst of the melancholy and, and, and all of that, and the darkness and the clouds, the thought that's coming to your mind is, I'm a failure. I've blown it, and I'm going to blow it again and again. And there's no hope for me. Now, the well-meaning but misinformed response that oftentimes comes by others to someone suffering in that way, and it is suffering, goes like this. No, 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 no. You're not a failure. You're fine. Don't think of yourself that way. You're good. You just need to be more positive. And deep down, we all know that's hooey. That's a lie. We're not fine. That's not medicine. That's not helping. It's not addressing the wound of the soul. What we have to say to ourselves and to one another, even in the midst of such seasons, is, you know what, you're right. You did fail. And you know what? You are going to do it again. And you know what? I get it. Because that's what it is to be with the rest of us as sinful human beings in this broken, broken world. But here's what's good to know. We have a greater Savior than our sin. who has borne it all and carried it away. That's the hope. That's the true hope. That's the message. God has a purpose for us. To become more like Jesus means running without swagger. It means running without swagger. There's no swagger to be had. So we run without swagger. Okay, that's the first point. The second being, what else does Paul say about what this race looks like? He tells us we need to be, in terms of our focus, looking with eyes riveted straight ahead. Verses 12 through 14. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made his, me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God 
in Christ Jesus. Running, running with eyes straight ahead, running without distraction. You know, think in terms of, of what it is to run a race like that. If you're going to do that and get there, you're not looking side to side. You're not comparing yourself with your fellow runners. Now, I know in a race like that, that's a competition. That's where their analogy falls a little bit because this is not a competition. If you do look side to side and see someone fall, well, then you're called to pick them up. But, you know, stay with the analogy. In the running, we're not to be looking side to side, comparing ourselves with one another and how they're doing. Nor are we to be looking behind, and that's really what Paul is after here, at ground already covered. And now that can mean a host of things, and it's hard to know exactly what Paul means here, but it's at least these things, not looking back at past failures, run! Not looking back at past successes, run! Or if you think in terms of the context of, of this chapter and what he's already said, not looking back and, and massaging our list of accomplishments and, and record and resume. Run! Leave that behind. Run without distraction. Run forward is what Paul is saying here. Run with determination. Run looking forward. To that, that, with the joy, with the hope, with the anticipation of knowing Jesus running forward, looking forward to knowing Him better, to seeing Him as He is, as the Apostle John says, to becoming like Him, looking literally, metaphorically also, forward to that, to the, to the crown given to the victor, as Paul says elsewhere, to the words to the sound of the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Run, look forward. Strive towards, towards that. Straining forward. You see what Paul is saying here? You know, Look at the language he uses. Um, he says he's pressing on verse 12. He's straining forward there in verse 13. What Paul is not advocating is a let go and let God. How many of you have heard that saying? Don't repeat it to yourself. It's a lie. That's not biblical theology. Nor is it stop trying and start trusting. That's not biblical either. That's not, what, that's not passivity that Paul is calling for here. He is calling for, as we talked about a few weeks ago, what Schaefer, Francis Schaeffer wrote of, active passivity. A wor we work as the Spirit works within us. He enables us to do what the Lord calls us to do. Think with me. If you want, just running with this analogy, if you want to have success in no, nearly any area of your life, you have to give yourself over to discipline in that area of your life. Do you not? I mean, give me an exception to that. I mean, why is it that the famous uh, acclaimed musician has the fame and acclaim that they do? Well, yes, they were likely born with great gifts, but they also committed themselves to what? Practice. Why? The, why is the, when the best-selling author is asked by all the, the English majors, sorry, Nicholas, 
Um, but all the and Micah, sorry. Um, you know why? Why the best-selling author? You know they're asked again and again. Well, how do I get to be so good? What do they say? Write, write much, and write often. Well, there's a parallel here to God's means by which we He intends for us to grow. They're oftentimes referred to as the means of grace, growing in grace. Experiencing all the more richly His grace. What are they? The Word? Reading it. The sacraments? Celebrating them. Prayer? Those are the traditional ones. I would add a few more. The fellowship of the saints is a means of grace. Obedience in the hard things is a means of grace. Is a means of grace. Now, this touches on in terms of how to apply all of this, this touches on yet another issue, not so much a critical thing that the church is facing, but I guess you could say, well, yeah, we are. But the world, the cynicism of the world towards the Christian message. The cynicism of the world towards the Christian message. You, you know, what is the greatest obstacle towards our any of our evangelistic efforts? You are. We are. We are the greatest obstacle to the gospel because we don't look like the Christ we proclaim, right? So you see, this connects to that. As we run with eyes ahead, I mean, the world, you know, the, the great buzzword, of course, is what? Authenticity. Now, I'm getting sick of it. I know you are too. But there's some something to it, the need to communicate Important things, not just with words, but with changed lives. So these things connect. These things connect. God's purpose for us is to grow in Christ's likeness. And so we're to pursue that and run, run with eyes ahead. Last point. Running with firm footing. And, and this, is, this is vital. This is foundational to the whole thing. Because if we don't get this part... Our running is going to be a little more than limping at best. And this is just going back to the first verse, and that's actually the second clause of the first verse of the passage, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made, has made me his own. What is Paul getting at here? Paul is getting at here the, the restlessness in the race that is tied to a resting in God's grace. A restlessness in the race that is tied to a resting in God's grace. A striving that is grounded in the security we have in Christ. So we press forward. Now, there's certainly some tension here. We could go back and read all of verses 1 through 11 and then verse 12. Paul's making it clear, my friends, we are saved through faith alone and not through works, looking only to the finished work of Jesus, not our works, but his. We're saved through faith, not through works, but yet at the same time, we're saved through a faith that does work. A faith, saving faith, a true faith that has received and embraced the gospel does bear fruit. It works. 
It applies. It manifests itself. It shows itself. Now, that's, there's a tension in that. Or maybe it's just a balance. I don't know how, the best way to put that. But, but there's connection here in what Paul says here in verse 12. Again, why does he run? Because Christ, he, he presses on to make it his own because Christ has made him his own. He runs not in order to be loved, but he runs because he knows he already is loved. Do you see that? And so he runs. He runs with joy, with a freedom, and a gratitude, and, and thanks, and a longing, and a wonder to know this one more who has saved him, and to know him better. So how do we run? We run with the firmest of footing. We run, if you will, with a restlessness, resting in grace. We race because of grace. Um, Father's Day, in case you didn't know, it is. Um, that's why I'm wearing the Snoopy tie. So, application. Your child comes to you. Some of you heard me use this analogy before. It could be literally you may experience it, or it could be not so much literally, but if you take a step back and think about it, it's the question you're being asked. Why do you love me? Daddy, why do you love me? Please do not answer this way. Because you are so smart, because you are so nice, because you are so clever, because you are so pretty, because you are so fast, do not, however you answer this question, do not put the child as the subject of the sentence. The best way to answer that question is, you know, I'm so glad all those things are true of you. They're great and they're fine, but you know why I love you? It has nothing to do with any of those things. I just do. I just do. Love them the way God loves you, just because. Love them the way God loves them, just because. You see, there's security in that. There's depths and wonder of security. So my question is, I guess in terms of pressing an application here, is do you know that's true of you as God looks at you? Do you, do you know that he, as, as Paul says here, has made you his own? Do you know that? And is that what's fueling your racing? Is that what's informing your restlessness? that you know in the depths of your being that He has already made you His own. That He's got you. That He's seized you. That He's caught you. That He's comprehended you. Is that what's driving your race? Fueling your restlessness? It needs to be. If it is, it will quell your every fear, your every worry, and your deepest anxiety. Knowing who has you. Knowing whose you are. His purpose for us is to become more and more like Jesus. My friends, let's run and run out of that kind of firm footing. I want to end with this. Relational dynamics. Thinking about that from this, this from that angle. And how when you love someone, you want to know them better. Right? 
That, I hope you'd agree with that. When, when you, those you most dearly love, you most want to know more of. Uh, Andrew Peterson, uh, some of you are familiar with him, he's a prolific um, singer and songwriter and author as well, has a wonderful song a couple albums ago called World Traveler. And the first few stanzas of the song, he's uh, speaking of how he, there was a time in his life where he wanted to see the world. He wanted to see the sights, visit the places that he'd only seen in the postcards. And, that's, and he does some of that. I mean, he, is, has, he has to tour, of course, as a musician. But then he shifts. He shifts that image. We pick up about halfway through the song. And soon enough I had my way. I saw the world the Lord has made, mostly from the interstate. But I had hardly seen a thing until I gave that golden ring to the one who gave her heart to me. And I became a world traveler. That's the day I hit the road. I walked the hills of the human soul of a tender girl. I'm a world traveler. She opened the gate and took my hand, led me into the mystic land where her galaxies swirl. So many mysteries I never will unravel. I want to travel the world. To know someone, to really know someone, to be to, to that sweet cycle of knowing and then loving and then wanting to know more and then loving more and wanting to explore because there's so much there to learn and to explore, even in a finite soul. How much more true is that of the Lord, of the one true living God who has revealed himself to us in Christ? He is inexhaustible. There are heights to him that cannot be scaled. Depths that cannot be fathomed. And this is the one that Paul had met on that Damascus road, or rather who had met him, knocked him down in order that he might lift him up, blinded him for three days that he might see forever, and Paul could not forget it. He had fallen in love with Jesus and wanted to know him more. And so he's running running and calling us to do the same. Let's pray. Lord, we are relieved to know that old uh, truth that you do find us, excuse me, you, you, you take us just as you find us, and that is of such relief to us because we could never clean ourselves up enough or get ourselves well enough ready. So you do take us just as you find us, but we also... Also, we are driven in wonder all the more to be reminded you don't leave us as you found us. You're beginning something now. Beginning something even now. Through our joys and through our sorrows to make us more and more like Jesus. A process that you are going to bring to completion one day where all of our hopes and all of our desires and all of our deepest longings will be truly met. So we look forward to the future with what's coming. We look back to what you've already done, what's been accomplished. And so now here in the moment, in this day, in the present, we know there's a race to be run. We ask that you'd help us to run it. In Jesus' name, amen.